0: Welcome to Swimming with Sharks, the podcast from Sail Sharks. I'm Mark Chapman, and in this podcast, we take you not uh, just inside Sail Sharks, but inside the sporting community uh, in the north as well. And also in each episode, we'll get to know one of uh, the Sharks' first-team players Uh, a little bit more. We'll meet one of the Sharks uh, women players later on this one. But first, we're going to talk about the business of sport. Uh, How do clubs operate commercially? How does that affect what they do on the pitch and how challenging is it uh, at the moment? So with us for this one, uh, Claire Butters, Sales and Marketing Director here at Sales Sharks. Uh, Daniel Gidney, the CEO of Lancashire County Cricket Club and Chris Bailey, CEO of Velocity Sports Group, who also works with Manchester Storm. The first one for all three of you in your respective organisations is how tough is it at the moment?
1: Um, well, I probably I'll start in rugby world. Quite topical at the moment. Um, for us, probably um, given the last season, probably the toughest season rugby's seen in a long time. I think if it, you know we've lost three teams out of the league for, for all for different reasons, and I think. Building, building a rugby club and building a commercial entity on the backdrop of the negative PR coming off the back of that is, is quite challenging, really challenging of how do you, how do you attract fans? How do you attract sponsors? How do you build confidence in our club and the league and the, and the integrity of the league? And I think, um, I think we're, we're probably in a very privileged position with our owners in that they're from Manchester, they're very generous, they're very supportive and really passionate about the club. So we don't have those, those same challenges. But i think yeah for us it's uh, it's about building confidence in the club and the perception of our club as a as a kind of corporate entity in the northwest daniel
2: yeah, I think we're in a good place commercially we've um we've got an ashes coming up in two and a half weeks uh, which uh, you know we we'd sold all general admission tickets out before Christmas, which was a record for us and hospitality we've got a little bit of off site left t twenties are going well i think um Cash flow is challenging to manage at the moment because we're building a 100-bed extension to the hotel, so we're doing all of that at the same time. Um, first stage of practical completion of that is six days before the ashes, so not, not a lot going on. Um, I think the hardest thing for us is recruiting and retaining hospitality staff at the moment just because the market is difficult out there. When you can earn £17, £18 pound an hour driving for Amazon, it's, um, it's difficult to get somebody to come and work long hours in a hotel or a restaurant.
0: Uh, you can either look at this from the Manchester Storm point of view or just your general overview of the of the sporting commercial
3: landscape. I th- think that's kind of touch on Manchester Storm but also the, the sport of ice hockey in general in the UK and I think that we're in, we're, the sport is in a really good place um, in, in terms of uh, Great Britain uh, are in the top pool of the World Championships again now. Um, they've pro- I think they've spent four out of the last five seasons um, playing against the likes of Canada, the USA, and Finland, Sweden, so all of the big nations, and that's really helping promote the sport and and you know bring bringing people to the the games and, and growing the the audience that that comes down. And um, I think the, the biggest challenge that that the sport faces at the moment is just the, the lack of facilities. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you, if you look at Manchester, there's there's one ice pad in Manchester, and that's an altering Um Somewhere like Sheffield, who you know they're they're a, a massive club uh, in in this country. There, there's three pads in in Sheffield, so there's, there's more ice time, and the the club are, are striving to kind of hit them levels and, and keep growing so that they can compete at the top end. But the the, the biggest challenge is actually having the the facility and, and the time to help develop the, these kids that are coming through and um, and and really allow people to take up the sport. And um, anybody that. Plays hockey in the UK. If the uh, if you ever speak to anybody that's played at what we call a rec level, which is kind of like your Sunday league, that the likelihood is, is that they've, they've played a good few games at starting at eleven o'clock on a Sunday night. So it's not the easiest sport to to actually take up and get playing. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge. for
0: sure. So I, I know, with bigger picture, starting at eleven o'clock on a Sunday night.
3: Yeah, the, uh, the the my god. But we talk about the facilities there, and and there's a lack of them. But I mean, there's. That that's not through the the businesses to operate these, um, not doing everything that they can to get everybody on, and um, it, it really is a business where when there's free ice, there's likely to be somebody on it, um, but it, it, there's just not enough ice.
0: Um, when when you look at the state of of uh, the three sports, maybe you know you're you're very much growing, and and. Uh, rugby and cricket on the field feel very positive at the moment. Off the field, there are huge challenges for, for both those sports. When commercial partners come to you or you go to commercial partners, how, how is that balance between what you do as a club and what you can offer but also what they worry about in the background?
1: Um, from our point of view in rugby, I think our... I think if we go back two years, our approach to commercial sponsorship was very transactional, so very much focused on how much money have I got and what can I get for my money. Whereas I think from a club perspective, over the last two years, what we've tried to do is go with a more kind of brand-led rhetoric in that conversation. So talking more about what I'd call the softer stuff around a club or the emotional stuff that looking for partners that want to invest in in the brand of Sale Sharks because. They believe in what we're doing in the community or they believe in what we're doing in women's sport or they believe in more than the kind of 80 minutes on the field. Um, So our conversation has changed slightly from it being about just rugby and more about northern rugby and the influence that our club can have in our region.
2: I think the important thing is to be keep it simple and be authentic. So when you're in a conversation with a potential sponsor is to... Is to be real with them and uh I know it sounds really easy to say, but you know never over promise and under deliver you've got to under promise and over deliver and I know it sounds really easy to say but it, it's really important to do that and and for us it's we we talk about having a family of partners and part of that is it's we we build long term relationships we don't want you can get some commercial partners that want a short term transaction we don't want transactions we want relationships and i think it's sometimes it's when you're up against it it's difficult but sometimes it's right to turn down a particular offer if they're not the kind of the right fit for you as an organization so I think you know little extra things like you know we took a lot of our partners on pre-season tour something like that um, those partners absolutely love that and the partners then that want to be a partner that want a piece of that they then hear about or well, what happened in Dubai and it's like well what goes on tour stays on yeah. tour, but it was just little things, but being authentic and just adding those extra values, but building a long-term relationship and saying, you know, we're a family of partners and we'll help you do business with each other, which it was done as well. Uh,
0: well. You made an interesting point there of, um, sometimes you turn it down because there's an assumption that as soon as a partner comes to, to a club or a sport, yes, thank you very much, we'll, we'll take the money. Um, I'm not saying these are reasons why you, you've turned anybody down, but do you think over, the past few years you have to do more research into a partner that a a potential partner to you I mean you know sport washing is the prime example that everybody talks about you know nobody really investigates who invests in Sainsbury's or whoever it may be but any any partners links with whatever it will come back on you
2: I think it's a really good point I think if you go back to 2013 you know Lancashire Curriculum Club had lost you know nine million over four years, technically insolvent. Um, We took every sponsorship that came our way and that was a position that we were in at that time. I think as we've become a bit more settled and more structured, we've been able to be more choosy. You know, we, we... Last year, we sold some advertising to a betting company and we regretted it. And this year, they offered us more money for the same, for the Ashes, and we said no. So I think... It's, but it's, it's difficult when, you know, you've got the CFO saying to you, well, that check looks nice, thanks. And it, it does look nice, but sometimes you've, you have to make those choices, and it is hard. I
0: mean, it's a minefield, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree on all the points that have been made so far. You know, I think that it, it is right that if a, if a partnership deal doesn't look right, that, that you walk away from it. Um, as much as they come on board and, and their brand is on there, they represent you as well so I think it's really important that if they're not the right brand to represent you that, that you do walk away from it. When it comes to partnership deals I think that uh, every sports club wants them, needs them um, but it's so much easier to, to retain than, than attract um, and I think that if it's a if it's a partnership with true value um, and that can be reflected then it's a, it's a match made in heaven.
0: You sort of had a knowing smile when we were talking about partners coming in may not be the r- the right fit. I mean, have you been in that situation with a uh, you know a potential a potential deal that might mean a little bit more money on a could go in one direction, but it might not be the right thing to do? I
1: think I think we we're, we're probably a little bit further behind than than cricket in that regard. I think those conversations tend to happen internally before we get to the point of saying no to anybody. I think what what's really interesting for us is like the, the education or the the understanding of short term wins over long term strategy, and that balance of making sure we're bringing in revenue to keep our club kind of sustainable, but equally having the the confidence to know that if we stick to our long term strategy, the commercial partners that we want to work with that fit with our brand and our values, and that want to do things like school education programmes that they are almost coming to us because they've bought into, into the, the broader kind of picture of the club. But yeah, so I don't I wouldn't say we've turned anybody down because I don't think we're in a, a position to do that. But equally we probably aren't going after partners if if they don't fit our criteria of, of kind of wanting to wanting to be a gen a genuine collaboration and partnership.
0: To those that that don't know, Lancashire were probably one of the first sporting organisations not just in cricket, but anywhere in this country to properly diversify, would that be fair?
2: yeah, I think that's fair, so I think we um we recognize that you know sport is professional sport is eighteen twenty five days a year, and you can't run any business on eighteen to twenty five days a year revenue. you know I remember when I first came to the club in back in twenty twelve is that all of our profit was made on six days a year, which was international mm-hmm. cricket, not even not even domestic cricket. And in any business, that's very dangerous and challenging when so much of your revenue comes in such a short period of time. So we knew we had to diversify and grow an anticyclical model, so a model that generates cash all the all the way through the year. And, and there, that was twofold, really. One was building conference facilities, and then, lastly, a hotel, which has been a game-changer for us. And sponsorship. You know, we also... We have a naming rights partner, and I think people think naming rights partners are easy. You know, we're at Emirates Old Trafford. I have to tell you, from my experience, they're not easy. And I think, I may be wrong, but I think in the Premier League, there's only one club that has a naming rights partner that isn't owned, that the club doesn't own that company. And I think that's um, Emirates as well at Arsenal. I think it's naming rights are quite hard to get away because it, it's so much money that it requires an emotional connection from an owner or a CEO of that of that company and generally they're not done quickly either. So, no, I think naming rights, conference and hotel business, definitely we diversified the business model and started generating cash in the winter, which was, uh, you know, for us was a new thing.
0: You have, I mean, you have naming rights as well, don't you?
1: Yeah. Or is it slightly different? Um, it, It's slightly different in that we we don't own the yeah. stadium. So it's obviously council owned. Um, We do have naming rights and the current partner is AJ Bell. Um. But like Daniel says, it it's an incredibly challenging sell in the sense that you, if you're going to come in to be a naming partner, you have to be in it for the long term because you need the first few years to flip out of the previous naming partner. So I think, yeah, it's really important. It's a high-ticket item, so there's not that many people who, like you say, are, are necessarily in that financial position to support. So it's it's finding the emotional connection and finding a company that... Um, cares enough about the club I suppose or the people within the club that, that they can support in that way
0: Can you uh, from a business point of view can you see the value in naming rights?
3: Yeah absolutely I think it's uh, w- within ice hockey in the UK there the are naming partners but probably similar to, to Sale um, they don't own their, the facilities to club so you look at the likes of Sheffield Nottingham um, Belfast Cardiff Devils They've just announced a new um, arena, naming partner. Um, it, it, it's the one that I think really stands out. It becomes synonymous with the brand. Um, it's similar to a title sponsor, but I think there's probably more exposure. You know, people don't talk about the is it team team viewer on the United shirt, but they talk. Well, about they talk that.
0: about it negatively. Which is the which is the interesting thing there. You know, t- team viewer took the United shirt sponsorship, and then the anti-glazer movement then just kept giving team viewer one star reviews on on i mean i don't even know what they do to be honest but on 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 whatever the relevant site was so i mean that is the and that partnership's going to come to a come to an early end
3: yeah and i th- I, I, th- I also think that the same i think it d- depends on how the fan base views it is if they view it as a as a commercial deal that's bringing money in, the people kind of go, yeah, okay, there's a benefit to it, and, and there is, you know, it's it's going to drive revenues up, especially in something the size of Manchester United. But the, the naming pattern, particularly in football, is one where you see a quite a lot quite a lot of backlash as well because the the you know White Hart Lane, for instance, is White Hart Lane, and if that became the you know the the Google. Lane, it's uh, the the fans aren't going to like that, so no, but but there's also you can't, you can never, I
0: don't think, any from the broadcasting point of view, you can't naming rights are a really difficult thing to get right because I know, I know from previous conversation with you, you don't always say Emirates Old Trafford on a broadcast because it because it wasn't always Emirates. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes it's just Old Trafford, you just say Old Trafford, whereas Sale have all, well, they haven't always. But as regards here, you can't say anything other than the AJ Bell because it. Well, it's, it's always been that it's since always it was been, built. Yeah. yeah. And the Emirates in uh, Arsenal has always been. But there are some lower league teams that change their stadium. I, I spend more of a summer trying to work out who plays where now than the than work Kat's, out. Kit Kat <laughs> Stadium <laughs> is the <that> wha- <laughs> the Wham Stadium for whatever. <laughs> I mean, but so
2: it's not. It's not an exact science, is it? No, it's uh, naming rights are are difficult to get away I think you have to have you have to build a connection I find with two or three individuals probably a year 18 months out so you have to be really patient and you have to build trust with that those individuals in that organization and whereas you get some organizations who want naming rights tomorrow it's just not from my experience it's really not it's really not possible.
0: Do you look at what Lancashire have done in with hotels and conference centers and think how can how I know you don't and, and the stadium, but how can we maximise what we have to create other opportunities?
1: Yeah, uh, we look, we look at, at cricket, we look at football, <laughs> we look at a lot of different sports and try and take learnings from, yeah, from Old Trafford of how they've expanded and evolved and become a music venue as well as a conference facility and a cricket venue I think because we don't own the stadium our remit or priority I guess is is driving revenue into the club and looking at new ways that we can drive revenue in so things like um, leadership days, like learning how to build a high performance team, those kind of things are where we probably would look to diversify so, so we look at kind of the trends I guess and the ideas and then think about how we can make those work for us, probably on a smaller scale. And until, you know, if one day we own the stadium, then absolutely we'd be looking at, you know, extra chiefs have, have got the hotel next to their stadium. So we would look at that. But I think at this moment in time, we're very much focused on how do we look at new new ways of driving in revenue on a smaller scale.
0: Do you think cooperation is the way forward for all sports other than Premier League football? I mean, my, my view is that everybody thinks, everybody thinks that football dominates everything. I would argue it's Premier League football that dominates everything. And everybody else could work together to be a stronger collective.
3: Uh, absolutely. Um, you know this is this is something that I'm I'm really passionate about. So um, I've had conversations with, with Steve Bland from Sale, you know, about can we can we get our guys down here? Can, do you want to bring the team down to, to Manchester Storm? But, but you know, we've done that with Stockport County. Um, we've done that with the Manchester Giants. We've had, um, you know, we've got plans to do it with some of the, the women's footballs teams now in the area. Um, so really trying to help each other grow and, and sort of get, get that face time at, at various different sports. One of the things that I always think is that we don't lose any fans because... Um, we, we do a deal with Sale to, yeah. to, to where where we're, we're sending that. fans. Fans are, are your fans. There there's a passion and they are your fans. And um, if there's an outlet for them to go and see something different, if you're both playing on the same night, I can guarantee you that they're still going to come to yeah. to whichever one they were at first. So I do think that that cooperation and trying to trying to get people to take in different sports and experiences is, is nothing but positive.
0: Claire?
1: I, like, I couldn't agree more. We have this debate a lot um, here around if you're a fan of cricket or football, you've got to stay in your lane and that's the only only sport that you are, so you couldn't possibly come and watch rugby. Whereas actually, like you think about if you're a fan of sport, you're a really? fan of sport, you can watch a, a football game, an ice hockey game, a rugby game. And that's, I think... Moving a mindset or, or shifting mindsets away from, oh, well, football fans will never watch rugby because they're football is just so archaic, in my opinion. I think I'm a, I'm a United fan, but I'll happily come and watch sale. I'd, I'd go and watch netball. I'd come and watch the cricket because I love sport. And I think, like, we call it the casual sports fan, but a bit of a jargony word. But looking at, you look at your own kind of network, how many people do you know that are a one-sport person? They're not. And I, I agree, I think... Getting that cross-sport mentality and enjoying lots of different sport and raising the profile of regional sport in the North West and whether it's cricket or football or rugby or hockey or whatever it is, there's a massive role, I think, for clubs to collectively raise the profile of our region because we have so much sport in our region comparative to the rest of the country and I think, why wouldn't we work together to raise the profile of that?
0: How how closed do you think cricket is? Or how open-minded is cricket, to put it in a more positive way?
2: I'd say it depends who you spoke to in cricket. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Yeah, but it does, doesn't it? I think um, we're very open. You know, we'd absolutely, particularly from a a short format white ball cricket, whether it's the hundred or T twenty, we'd absolutely embrace working closely with other sports. I think uh, for the more traditional county championship or fifty over stuff, I think that's a bit more difficult because I think it's 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 less consumable for a brand new visitor to cricket that format, but also. The customers and members who love that format probably have less of an interest elsewhere. So it's, um no, I think it, it does depend who you speak to, but I think from our perspective generally, and particularly with the, the shorter formats, I think definitely collaboration would be a good thing. Who do you view, um all of you, as your
0: competition? And I, and I can set that up for you if you want. And I can remember being at Chelsea once with a, a, an American executive from an NFL team. And he couldn't believe that Stamford Bridge was only five hundred yards away from a view cinema at Fulham Broadway. He went, that that's that's competition for me. So what so that when I ask what the competition is, I don't I don't it might not be a sporting.
1: I think from from our perspective, we are in a region that's traditionally rugby league, so there's a there's an element of competition there. Um, and we have four of the biggest football teams in the world on our doorstep so there's an element of competition there but
0: United City Well who are the four United City well, Stockport and Ultron yeah of course <laughs> of course <laughs> right, we okay. don't talk about <laughs> Liverpool and oh, Everton oh, <laughs> oh you were going over <laughs> there were you oh. well, we can't talk about on, Liverpool yeah. all right United City Everton and Stockport there you
1: go yeah that'll do us that'll do us no, but we, it's competition and it's not, isn't it? Like football's tribal and you've got your crew that will go to football and football only, but then the, the majority of fans. So our competitions are the sport. I think, I, I think there's a, an element of entertainment, like family days out, that would be competition for us because we're trying to, much the same as cricket, attract a family audience. Um, I think competition, from our rugby union perspective, comes on the day that we play. If we play on a Saturday, we really struggle because football's on a Saturday, amateur rugby's on a Saturday. Getting people to a game on that day for us is the hardest sell because of all the other things that you can do as a family on a Saturday and as a fan. Friday nights, we'll fill the stadium over every day of the week because we can own Friday night as that sporting entity. I think
2: for us it's complicated because I think it depends on on the day and what's going on. So I'll give you an example. So um, our T20 tickets generally are... You know, if you go to Essex, you'll pay thirty-five pounds. For us, it's generally ten to fifteen pounds. So we're competing with Albert Schloss. You know, at the end of the day, so it, it, on, you know on a Friday night. So it's that's that's kind of quite that, trying to get your head around that. I think we've got. But then on, you you
0: have on to go on research trips to your competition <laughs> just to see what you're up. Oh, about. definitely. Yeah. Yes, very much. Mar- marketing <laughs>
2: intelligence just is just very six important. I was in Albert There's Schloss. Just right <laughs> I think they, they talk about. Mancunians use tables to stand on well definitely in there Um, apparently Um, but um, if you look at this weekend we've got a a family game on Sunday against North Ants which will be a very different crowd to Friday night where we have the Roses fixture which is the closest thing we get to footballing cricket, it's very rowdy, very noisy bit of drinking going on so it's kind of different audiences, I think that's from a customer perspective from a business perspective um, I look at You know, our turnover has grown over the past 10 years from about 10, 11 million. This year, it'll be over 34, nearly 35 million. But we only have three and a half million broadcast revenue. And that's quite important. So if you look at the Premier League, I would say we have more non-broadcast revenue than about four or five Premier League clubs now. And I think that for us is we see ourselves competing with some of those Premier League clubs. On another day, we might be competing with a big Hilton Metropole or Manchester Central. So it's kind of, we have different different competitors on different days.
3: Probably a, a little mixture of both um, with, with the hockey. So um, we're a sport where the, the players would probably say it's not fortunate, but from a fan perspective, it is. We, we tend to play at least twice a weekend. Um, there are occasions where we'll play Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So there's always a night where we, could, we know that you know, there's no football on the Friday. Like Claire said, if you've, got a, if you've got a Friday, you can kind of own it and you can target that. Come from work, bring your team, let, let's get out there, let's do something different. You know, we, we do various different um, packages where you could bring your business and, and you could treat it as a staff night out. And it's something completely different to, to I feel, all of the sports. So, Claire, you, you said like, you know, it's, it's very tribal and, that's something that comes up constantly in sport and it's what I love about football but it's what the, the fact that it isn't like that in hockey is what I love about hockey as well so it's 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 a fine line where hockey really caters for, for everybody so our demographic of our, our our fan base is is families it's you know these uh these the, the mum and dad with the three kids and they've all got the shirts on and then there's, there's the couple that are in the 70s and they've both got the shirts on but then there's the group of girls that are going on the night out in Altrincham and they've decided to come down and, you know, it's it, it really does kind of cater for everybody because you can, get some, you can get some food, you can sit in the stand and have a beer or, you know, you can... You can be focused on the game. And, you know, like I think we said before we came on, the first question everybody says to me is, is the fighting. Yeah. And it's like, well, but you know, a long time ago, yeah. You know, the, obviously, the the it's not it
0: that group of girls before they go for an eye <laughs> out in Alton. Well, you never know. <laughs>
3: the, 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 the thing with hockey is I, I think that it caters to everybody. So there's not many, well, there's no other sports in the world where people are flying around. At, you know, you've got guys that are six foot five and weighing in at, you know, 100 and. £190 flying into each other at 30 miles an hour and where on average there's probably eight goals a game and every now and again you treat it to a bit of a boxing match as well in the middle, that doesn't happen anywhere else so I think we're in a unique position where we've got something which is a a, a product that I I feel is like no other but but again probably the biggest competition that we have is that we're still a developing sport in the country and, and we're not seen as people's Saturday evening you know people would rather like you say go to Albert Schloss and and do that where the reality of what we're trying to do is go hey you can do both you know so um for, for us it's about keeping growing and and showing people that there's something a bit different and I also feel that it's that one where it doesn't matter who you support you know I've got mates we between my group we support Stockport, Man United, Man City, Liverpool, ev- everybody um, nobody supports Anybody but Manchester Storm when they come to Manchester Storm because they're, they're, we're the only Northwest ice hockey team. So everybody's on the same on the same side for a change.
0: If this podcast doesn't get sponsored by Albert Schloss by the <laughs> by the end <laughs> of it, I don't know what I don't know what what, what will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just a final one because I mean we talked I mean we talked about diversification in the commercial side of things and sponsor and so on. When we talk grassroots, I would imagine in all three sports that that could be at very differing levels what does grassroots mean in ice hockey and how much how much give and take is there when it comes to the link between the professional and the grassroots
3: well well the first one is is that these we're all at the same facilities um so like i said earlier that there really isn't the the amount of facilities there's not the i don't think that there's the investment at the level that it should be from the, the government into you know councils providing more facilities to to help accelerate that growth um, in, in terms of the grassroots you know Manchester Storm uh, set up an academy I think it was back in 2017 now um, this hasn't gone out yet so I don't, I don't know when the podcast's gone out there might be breaking news but this season we're, we're actually going to sign our our first uh, professional out of the academy, um, so we'll we'll have a we'll have a 16 year old in the team next year who's got an amazing future, and um, that that's come of the development of, of what got set up a few years ago. So that's a really huge stride for, for, for the club, um, bringing its own talent through, which which we're going to see for the first time this season. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms terms of growth, it's it's difficult with, without the the facilities, and you know. You, we, we talked talked earlier about great britain getting to the top level we're competing with the likes of canada and sweden and it, it dwarfs in numbers of coaches and numbers of facilities and until we can kind of get to a point where anybody who wants to to join and get on can do you know at the moment all that we can do is put more bodies on the ice we can't give extra time so the numbers of people that are on there just increase where really what we need is more places to fewer numbers. Daniel?
2: Yeah I think from a from a men's and boys perspective I think Lancashire has always been, had a very very strong connection with his pathway we generally have on average seven players in our first team that come through the pathway I think that's pretty strong compared to a lot of sports I think you know look at Jimmy Anderson's probably the most famous son of Lancashire he's you know he's turning out today at nearly 41 which is astonishing for a bowler in a test match I think but on the other end of the spectrum we've got george bell more, more recently of orderly edge cricket club um who looks like he's about 10 um and he's already played quite a few games for us so i think that's right i think on the women and girls side um we have more work to do i think um you know i talked to claire a lot about this we've got a professional women's program now it's only been going two and a half years uh, we're still very much in the early stages but from a um you know the boys pathway gets funding from the governing body in cricket by by about 180,000 a year the girls pathway gets 14,000 so if we want to talk about you know equity that that's an area that we have to resolve i think um we've got we've developed now a lot of players we've had to de- we've had to get external commercial funding to help us do some second team fixtures which basically when i say second team it's effectively um an academy so it's basically 16, 17, 18 year olds we, you know which is which is positive. but the real benefit is we have to build more girls sections um, in, our, in our men's clubs and I think those numbers now have, have grown significantly over the last 10 years. we've still got a lot more to do um, and this is where commercially men's sport is really mature so the return on investment is quite far out because it's quite a high barrier to entry. Whereas women's commercial sport now, I think, is a fantastic place if you look at what the Lionesses have done um, and you look at um, England women's cricket, England women's rugby. I think there's definitely opportunities commercially to attract sponsors, and we're definitely doing it at our side with Sports Breaks, Hilton, CMS, BDP, who've specifically been interested in the women and girls programme because they recognise that the investment is lower at this point, but their return is much greater.
0: Claire.
1: Yeah, I think um, from a, a, a pathway point of view, or from a rugby side, the boys pathway has been that, like the DPP and the way that you come into rugby um, is very locked and very, very successful. And, and obviously you've had Ferg on the podcast who's our academy manager. And, and I think from, a, from an on-pitch product point of view, we have a really strong approach to the way we do that. How we then blend that with brand and culture um, we talk a lot about fabric of the north and and that isn't something we just say as a, as a commercial team, that's genuinely a thread through the whole business and, and purposeful in the sense it impacts how lads come through the academy, but it impacts how we kind of increase our footprint in grassroots and how we, you know, we've got a responsibility, I think, to increase participation, to grow the game. And I think, from a from a commercial side, we can do that by partnering with brands that see the opportunity and want to come on board with those grassroots programmes in schools. In um, we do a lot of work with, and um, we have a hundred grassroots clubs across the region, um, right up to Cumbria, actually. That we st- we we spend a lot of time and care making sure that they're supported commercially and from a rugby point of view. But I think women's is interesting for us. Like Daniel said, we've spoken about this a lot and how do we find the synergies between the women's cricket team and um, and our women's team. And I think we're a really new team into women's rugby at, at a semi-pro level. There is no pathway for girls at the moment. And I think at this moment in time, we're trying to find a way to support girls getting into rugby and making sure that when they fall out of sport after year nine, that they don't that there's an option for rugby for them to come into and as they get older when they're falling out of other sports if they're playing football or netball or ice hockey or whatever it might be and they don't make it there that there's a we can kind of sweep up that talent into a different sport so um there's a ton of work to do on the women's side and we'll we'll start working with Daniel and his team on on how do we find those synergies with cricket and rugby but i think um yeah, growing grassroots for us, in simple terms, is making the pond bigger. The more people that are interested in rugby, whether they go on to play or whether they come on to watch, for us, that's the goal, isn't it? To, if we fill our stadium for every game, then our commercial job's done. And I think the way to do that is bring as many fans into the sport as you can, convert them into participation or convert them into watching. And then I think um, I think we can put our feet up, our <laughs> job done.
0: Wow. <laughs> Or, or go for a drink at a Manchester <laughs> oh, City maybe, session. Shall we do maybe that now. So. <laughs> thank you, Claire, Daniel, Chris. Thank you uh, very much. Now, as ever, on uh, swimming with the sharks, we uh, get to know one of the sharks players a little bit better with the help of his or her teammates. Let's find out who's under the spotlight. Like this.
4: I'm Holly Thorpe. Uh, I play on the wing for Sail Sharks, and I'm here with Lauren Delaney.
5: Hello, I'm Lauren Delaney. I'm fullback and winger for Sharks and Ireland.
4: Nice. So Delaney, I would like to ask you, what is your first memory of playing rugby?
5: Oh, um, my first memory of playing rugby was back in Bletchley, in Milton Keynes, the first team I played for at 25. And the earliest memory was probably my first game when I was put on the wing. And I think in training, we were never given the opportunity to actually sprint. So at this one point, we kicked for touch. And the first time when I was on the wing, I absolutely sprinted. And then everyone turned around and was like, sorry, where did that speed come from?
4: <laughs> <laughs> we have the same reaction sometimes to Lenny, don't we? <laughs> uh, did you always want to be a professional rugby player?
5: Oh, no. Back in the day, I played um, basketball for 15 years. So probably that was my... Um, initial dream, being a professional basketball player, but very quickly realised that was not an option back in Ireland, um, as it was not professional. Um, but yeah, it's probably become a dream in more recent years.
4: Nice. Uh, who was your biggest childhood influence?
5: Oh, I feel like most people normally answer like their mum or dad, but probably going down the sporting route. I don't know whether you'd actually know who this is, Holly, uh, shown my age, but my probably biggest sporting influence was Sonia Sullivan, an oh. Irish <laughs> silver Olympic medalist. Um, I think she was maybe 5,000 metres, maybe um, 10,000 metres as well. And I remember in like primary school and doing a project on her and then suddenly became obsessed and wanted to know everything about her. But she was, um, yeah, a pretty... Um, big name in Irish women's athletics back in the day.
4: Cool. Uh, What is the best piece of advice you've ever had?
5: The best piece of advice, I'd probably say in more recent years, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's a big one in rugby for many reasons, but as we're heading into pre-season now, as we're really excited about Holly. Yeah. Um, I think there's going to be quite a lot of uncomfortable moments. Um, but yeah, I think at our level you've got to be comfortable and um, being uncomfortable.
4: Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, please give me your career highlight.
5: Ooh, my rugby career highlight. I would probably have to say scoring my first international try for Ireland, my second cap. I was at Twickenham playing against England in front of ten thousand people. Um, nice. in I think it was November twenty eighteen. Yeah, it was a pretty cool try. Got the ball off Claire Malloy, um, out the wing. I did this humongous dummy pass and then just sprinted <laughs> for the try line. Um, yeah, in front of all my friends, family. And um, my extended family and everyone in the corner that they were sitting at Twickenham as well.
4: Oh, that's unreal. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you have any superstitions?
5: No, I quite actively try not to be superstitious <laughs> just in case anything goes wrong or anything changes. I don't want to be that person that then panics and can't adapt. So I try and very much not be superstitious at all.
4: Yeah, that's that's good. I have a lucky sports bra and I've just been playing sevens in Gibraltar and we lost the first three games. So lucky sports bra is now in the bin.
5: Oh, no. Yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what is the best thing about being a shark?
5: Ooh, the best thing. God, there's so many things. Um, I would say probably the best thing about being a shark is being supported and managed and coached by... Some of the best female rugby players in the world, and Rachel Taylor and Katie Daly McLean. I feel like every training session you learn something new, as well as they're just the most approachable and human-focused coaches there is. And I think that's one of the the best parts of being part of the club.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have any hobbies outside the game?
5: Ooh, apart from dating. <laughs> <laughs> and brunch yeah and brunch uh, with Holly yeah absolutely (laughs) and Vic Um, I suppose my biggest hobbies would be cooking kind of comes hand in hand with being a nutritionist Um, so I do love to cook Um, I also like to I read quite a lot Um, I love sports autobiographies I love kind of self-development books and then when I'm on holiday like I was last month I read about five rom-com novels (laughs)
4: nice uh, have you got any unusual talents
5: unusual talents oh that's an interesting one um, I haven't done it in recent months but I was known for years when I was younger being able to do that weird Russian dance where you were down like on your <laughs> hunkers and then your legs go out straight
4: uh, I maybe I have to, maybe I have to try
5: it out training later yeah, but that was that an was unusual speaking.
4: talent <laughs> Okay, uh, tell us something we don't know about you.
5: Hmm, something you don't know about me. Um, I don't know, there's kind of boring ones, like I've been to five different universities, I've like moved house 10 times in 10 years, but probably the most weird one is that I'm a big fan of just eating as a snack dried pasta. What? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's a really weird one. I've done it since <laughs> I was a kid, and my mum always used to say that that'll like break your teeth or hurt your gums, but never does.
4: What's your favourite kind of dry pasta?
5: Bit of fusilli,
4: maybe. Oh, really? Yeah. I like the little parcels. Ooh, I
5: can't remember. I can't remember They're what the their name like, Little bow
4: ties. Yeah,
5: Farfadella. Is that the name? Far Farf- okay. Yeah, there you go. That's anyway, do ones. you like them dry or, uh, or cooked? <laughs> <laughs>
4: if I had to pick a preference it would probably be cooked but
0: true you do you Uh, thanks very much for listening to this episode of swimming with sharks we'll have another one uh, next month and in the meantime you can find out everything to do with the club and this podcast uh, on all the social channels